Hey guys, it's Corolla here. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to join us as we read along. We're reading from John chapter 20 verses 1 to 23. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stopping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbanai which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Hi everyone, my name is Luke. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church Golden Grove. And thank you so much for inviting us into your living room today for Easter Sunday. I really appreciate you taking a few moments to join us to explore the claims that Jesus makes, especially uh, on today of all days. You know, given our current climate, uh, it feels like, or it can feel like Australia has become like a foreign nation just overnight. You know, the idea that life is now serious um, and not just materialistic and fun is a really dominant mood as you scroll through your newsfeed or head to the grocery store. Sure, there are plenty of memes going around and I hear that Andrew's still asking lots of questions at the press conferences, but life seems to have a different feel to it, doesn't it? We are, we are afraid, uh, we're being more concerned for the community than the individual by self-isolating, and that's different too. You see, the control that we may have had um, in our study plans for this year, or the five-year business plan that we've been working so hard towards, the goals for our home and our children, well, most of that's just been wrecked uh, and ripped apart in the last few weeks, has it not? It's not oblique, of course. Uh, crisis breeds innovation. 
And we're seeing some great efforts by companies and individuals uh, with truly altruistic behavior at the moment. But you know, all this change brings with it a level of fear and anxiety. And so I think feeling a little fragile right now is actually okay. And you know that on the first Easter, the first Easter Sunday, I think they would have felt quite similar to us today as well. They were very aware of their mortality, a heightened sense of fear and dread as these people contemplated their future. Why was that? Their entire plan, their entire purpose for the last three years had been arrested, nailed to a cross, stuck in a tomb, all in the space of three days, and that's Jesus, of course. Recall that a lot can change in three days, can it not? On March 18, you could no longer gather with more than 100 people indoors. Three days later, 20,000 airline workers are stood down, all non-Australian citizens are banned from entering the country, and 14-day quarantines became a thing. So let's look on Easter Sunday at some eyewitness accounts of a few people who saw the resurrected Jesus, their journey from unbelief towards belief, and how it moved them from fear to joy, from hopelessness to hope, and maybe that will be you today as well. So we're going to look at a narrative in three parts. You can follow along in the outline uh, in the notes section of church here. I'm going to make some comments along the way and then bring it home for us today as well. The first part, part one, is in the first 10 verses. I've called it the shock. The shock. So Mary, she comes to the tomb early on Sunday morning, and to her surprise, she finds the stone rolled away from the entrance. You see, once a stone's in front of a tomb, it's not thought you'd remove it, right? It was heavy. But somehow it had been pulled back, and of course, uh, we know that Jesus isn't inside that tomb. Now, I don't think the stone being moved away was for the benefit of Jesus. Suffice to say, Jesus could have walked through the stone if he really wanted to. It wasn't like the stone kept him in there. The stone being rolled away is a sign for the disciples, his friends, that Jesus is alive. So the stone pulled back is the first step in creating belief. It's also a very shocking step too. Now all of this is very distressing for Mary. She goes expecting to find Jesus and he's not there. Just imagine the phone call from the funeral home. Someone you love has just passed away and they call you up and say, I'm sorry, we can't find the body. That's how Mary is feeling at this moment. She runs to Jesus, two of Jesus' friends and they rush to the tomb to her. They have a look around and then we're giving this great amount of detail about the cloth wrapped around Jesus' head. It's lying over here and, and the, the shroud and the linen wrappings are here in this place. It's very strange because that would mean the body's undressed. Now given the crucifixion and beatings, it wouldn't have been a nice body, right? It would have been beaten up. Why would you undress a body, let alone take the body, unless something new has happened here? Notice too that the friends of Jesus are not naive, gullible people at this point who badly just want to believe that Jesus is alive. They know he's dead. They're mourning. They're fearful. They saw it with their own eyes. What we find in the gospel accounts is highly skeptical men and women who are gradually convinced of the truth that Jesus is alive and rose from the dead physically with a real bodily resurrection. Notice too in verse 7, John links the seeing of the grave clothes with belief in verse 28. The clothes were enough to create belief in Jesus. Here's the thing, John reminds us it's only when they didn't see that they believed. So you see, not seeing Jesus was how they really saw Jesus, right? What they saw in the empty tomb was belief. So John is saying, no one's taken this body, rather Jesus himself took his body back, you see. Yet at the same time, they still, his friends, didn't quite understand this was the fulfillment of planned, predicted, penned writings of the Old Testament. 
maybe when John wrote this and said this scripture had to be fulfilled, he had in mind Psalm 1610, which says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor let your faithful ones see decay. Or Hosea 6.2, after three, uh, two days he will revive us, and the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Or maybe it was just the entire Old Testament, Genesis 1.1 to Malachi 4.6, witnessing Jesus as the Messiah. But, but I understand that isn't a story of someone rising from the dead difficult to believe in? Theologian John Frame says the argument of the resurrection of Jesus is essentially an appeal to a new mind, not the old. It calls us to hear God's word and believe in it. The factual evidence for this miracle is strong, but God's word is stronger. You know, the, the disciples, like I said, struggled to get their head around the resurrection too. It was a shock, wasn't it? But at this point, the story isn't over. They're in for the surprise of their life. And this is part two, the surprise. So John and Peter, they leave. Mary decides to have one more look in the tomb in verse 11. Maybe like when you open the fridge for the 10th time, hoping to see something that you missed. Uh, maybe for Mary, Jesus' body is still there and she just missed it, right? It's, it's, it's moved position. and Well, she doesn't need to go in and, and see something that wasn't there before, but it's not Jesus. Two angels. Verse 12 and 13, they ask her, Mary, why are you crying? And the marriage response is so sweet and endearing. They've taken my Lord. I don't know where he is, she says. Her Lord is gone. She wants him back. She wants to know where he is. At this point, she hears a noise and she turns around quickly to see someone standing there. And this time she finds Jesus in verse 14, but she doesn't recognize him yet. Why? Why didn't she notice Jesus standing in front of her? Well, at one level, I'm sure she just didn't expect to see him, right? Standing upright, alive. The only thing she can rationalize in her mind is that it's the gardener. Remember, the tomb is in a garden. Think back to when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve after they sinned, looking for his people. It feels a bit like that moment, doesn't it? Now, I'm not sure what the gardener would have had to do with the dead body, but it just made sense to Mary. I mean, grief, confusion does it to it, it does us to it, doesn't it? We piece together the most random things in our mind, trying to grasp and make sense of what's happening, and we see Mary wrestling with that. And then we have one of the most beautiful, dearest lines in all of Scripture. Jesus drops her name right from his lips in verse 16, Mary. The way Jesus always said her name echoes deep in her heart, resonates with her, and she's overwhelmed with this truth. The resurrected Jesus is standing right there in front of her. You see, Jesus is helping her work it all out to lead her into belief. For some, it was the empty clothes. For Mary, it was when Jesus gently spoke her name. And then Jesus says something really strange. Mary's hugging him and and weeping and she says, don't cling to me. Wouldn't you cling to the person you love who just died? Of course you would. But what is Jesus saying? He's still got work to do. Verse 17, he says, I have not yet ascended to my father. Instead, Mary, go and tell your excitement, go direct your excitement towards my friends, the disciples. Tell them, my brothers, that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What he's saying here is that when he ascends, he will send. When he ascends, he will send. Who will he send? He'll send his Spirit. That has massive implications. See, it's not about us clinging onto him like Mary. It's about the Spirit holding onto us, you see. It's about Jesus coming, like he did for Mary, to find us in all our confusion, all our fear, all our grief, like when God searched for Adam and Eve in the garden and called out to them. And you know what he did when he found her that it blew her socks off? Did you hear it? He spoke her name, right? 
just think about this. We could start with Richard Dawkins, who said, the gospel accounts are a story like Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, a collection of Chinese whispers and conclude that there is no God. That we as humans are simply atoms and species and blips. After all, the universe doesn't care about us. Viruses and pandemics, they come and go, that's it. Life's a cruel game. Uh, that Some win and some lose. And so if we're just a blip, then that's it. Choice one. Or, or maybe there is a God and he does care. Because here's a God who's going to remember you. You go to work and people can't remember your name. Your teachers don't remember your name. You call back the call center and no one knows who you are. You're just a number in the queue. The Roman and Greek gods don't really care about you. The universe certainly doesn't care about you either. But Jesus, the God man, said Mary. Her name, the Christian God, makes the claim that he cares. So therefore, I invite you to keep checking out the claims of Jesus. Yes, to Mary, to John. They find it incredible too. But there's still more surprises to come in just a moment in part three. We're going to to see the summons that the resurrected Jesus gives to those who believe. Because belief in Jesus gives us a whole new narrative to live our life in and out. So then in verse 19, in the summons, we meet a large group of Jesus' friends. We find them socially isolating. They're filled with fear. Not from a pandemic, from the religious leaders of their day. Naturally, Jesus is their follower having been killed. You go after the followers who are left and they're hiding for fear behind a locked door. Locked door. Fear rules the disciples' hearts as they sit in this room. But Jesus can go anywhere, any place, any space, even fear, even hiding, even to the deep cavities of your heart, into your past with authority and peace. Look at what he says as he walks into this room full of fear and darkness, confusion. Peace to you in verse 20. Showing them his hands and his side, confirming that it is indeed him. I mean, mean, just think, the lack of modern medicine, painkillers, intensive care, made it very hard to keep people from dying with such extensive wounds back in Jesus' day in the first century. And even after sustaining wounds, you don't walk around after three days of being stuck with a, on a crucifix and having a spear poked in your side. Notice that Jesus isn't dripping with blood, or he's, he's not a zombie at this point either. But how do they know it's him? The scars. Someone has once said, how important for a needy, hurting people that Jesus is recognized first and foremost by his scars. But he's not just here to say hello. In verse 21... As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The idea here is that because Jesus is the great sent one, he is sending the disciples. They're caught up, caught up, in fact, into proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection as the way of peace with God, with one another, and within ourselves. It's the cure for sin. It's the victory over Satan, sin, and death. It's the hope to face each day that the resurrected Jesus gives. And then we have this weird scene which makes us in the COVID-19 pandemic cringe and warning alarms goes off because Jesus breathes on them. It's like when God breathed life into Adam and Eve, isn't it? Here, Jesus, the God-man, is showing them that new life is coming from him through the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God is going to take up residence in them, slapping the sticker on them, on the for sale sign for their bodies, saying, paid in full by Jesus' blood. New owner, new occupant, new mission underway here. And that's why Mary couldn't cling to Jesus, you see. Jesus is going to be closer to her than if he was present because he will be in them through his spirit. Then in verse 23, we find this this weird little saying from Jesus about forgiving others. Just a brief comment on that. Remember, uh, first of all, that God is the one acting through the disciples. He has just sent them in verse 20. He's filling them with his spirit. 
As we keep reading the New Testament accounts of the apostles, uh, we never ever see the disciples forgiving sins. They always point people to Jesus as the one to forgive people by his death and resurrection. No one saves but him. And so what we could say is this is simply the result of preaching the gospel. Some will believe and repent and are forgiven by God. Others don't believe and therefore are not forgiven. And it happens as his followers speak, you see? Our egalitarian lean in the Australian culture for all people to be treated the same doesn't bode well for that statement, does it? Do you mean to say that all who do not believe in Jesus won't find forgiveness? Yes. Do you mean that the forgiveness I'm searching for, I can't find, it's not about digging deeper and believing in myself more? Yes. God saves us because of what he's like, because of something that is in his heart, rather than something that is in our heart, Sam Albury said this week. So that's part three. So we have the shock that Jesus is alive, the surprise of the resurrection happening, and the summons that the resurrected Jesus gives to his followers. That's the narrative. So what do we, what do we say about that for today? Well, I think two reflections. One is a personal uh, reflection, and one's a communal one. So what I think John, the author, is asking us to do here is to help us see with new eyes the personal implications of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, Jesus, the one who knows all the hairs on your head, or lack of, is the same one that knows our name. Jesus knows us personally, personally, intimately. We see that. Remember Jesus said, Mary. Remember, three days earlier, Jesus was abandoned by his friends, alone in a garden, betrayed, falsely accused, humiliated, physically hurt. He grieved what would happen to him. Why? Also that we would have the assurance that God can be our Father, Jesus our Savior, big brother, the Holy Spirit, the one who lives in us, giving us life and hope. Because we have a suffering Savior who came through the other end, the other side for us. Which means you will find Jesus in your garden of tears, in your pain at the side of a coffin, in the loss of your job, in the grief of having to be at home. Better still, he will find you. One of my favorite quotes is from Christian author Craig Bartholomew. He says this, In his death, Jesus accomplishes that salvation. At the cross, he wages war against the powers of evil and he defeats them. And in his resurrection, Jesus opens the door to new creation and then holds that door open and invites us to join him. Jesus' invitation is open to all in the midst of our pandemic and tears and fears. And he is here as the risen saviour, overcoming death, offering us new eyes and new hope to see the world with. The kingdom of God is waiting for you because of the resurrected Jesus. He's looking for you. Will you come? So individually, new eyes. Secondly, like ripples from a rock that's thrown into a creek that just get bigger and more outward, the Christian story is not just about the individual, but it always moves to a community. There is a communal implication that the resurrection gives us, individual in our community. Please see that Jesus speaks to a group of at least 10 people in verse 19. We know that Judas is already dead. He killed himself. Thomas wasn't there yet. We'll see uh, next Sunday. So that makes 10, plus any others that are following around too. So when Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, it's plural. As in, you guys, y'all. It does sit a little uncomfortably with us that Jesus would direct us to a group mission and give us a group purpose, though, really. I mean, it smacks us in the face of an individual, individualist, individualistic, find your own purpose, live your own truth mindset, doesn't it? For someone to come in and claim sovereign authority, telling you what to now do. But as much as you don't want to be an individual want to be an individual, sorry, we actually don't. The paradox is that the journey to find myself is always shared. 
And every road movie, you have this, this story of someone wanting to find themselves who then says to the person next to them, uh, come along with me. Or the social media influencer who takes another, another photo and comment about how they're, they're individual and it has, uh, checks their likes to see how many people have followed them. You see, the resurrection reveals to us what we need isn't just to find ourselves, but to be found by another self and to be set about on this other person's mission. Purpose. To have our identity secured in him and what Jesus has done. And then to be proclaiming that security and peace that he offers to everyone. And so Jesus gives the Spirit along with himself all the courage we could ever need. Because Easter calls us into an amazing story to connect with something bigger, someone bigger than ourselves than what's here. We're called into an amazing story, not for our sake, but for the sake of the world. And so that's Easter Sunday the individual and the community. And so perhaps you would find yourself by losing it, by leaving your place of security, for finding the purpose that God has in the new eyes to see Jesus as the resurrected, risen Savior of the world. And then finally, in John 20, 20, the disciples are overjoyed when they see the risen Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have that joy today too? Join the resurrected Jesus. Well, you can. I hope that you would explore the claims of Jesus further. Thank you so much for being with us today. Have a wonderful afternoon, a great rest of your Easter, and continue to explore the claims of Jesus. We'll be here again next Sunday, continuing our story in John's Gospel, as we look at Thomas, who doubted and didn't quite believe yet. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you don't yet believe. You're exploring it. Why not come back? I'd love to be back in your living room uh, sharing the message of Jesus with you again next week. We all would be. Have a wonderful Easter Sunday. We'll see you again real soon.